0: We have seen so far in chapter 1, we saw in the first half of chapter 1 that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered into human history and became a man for this purpose so that you and I could enter into fellowship with God. And then last week we saw in the last half of the chapter that there is one thing that breaks our fellowship with God, and that is sin, right? And we saw in that passage how to deal with and how not to deal with sin. So um, today's passage also continues that discussion about sin. Let's see what he says about it in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. The Apostle John writes, he says, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. He starts off by saying, my little children, he addresses them as my little children. These are probably people that came to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of the apostle John. So these are believers. These are converts to Christianity. They're lovers of Jesus Christ. Even as this passage was written to Christians back then, so this passage is intended by God for you. It's intended by God for you. Let's get more specific. It is no less true to say it this way. If you are a Christian, these three sentences that we have just read were put here by the Spirit of God for you to read and to take to heart. So, are you a Christian? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of your sins? The next question is now, do you still, on occasion, as a Christian, sin? As a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, do you sometimes have a, a bad attitude? And do you sometimes uh when you have a bad attitude take that out on the innocent people around you? Do you sometimes sin in terms of your speech? Say something you should have you shouldn't have said? And if not, turn to your spouse and ask them, Have have I ever done that? Have you had sinful thoughts? Have you thought things about someone? You haven't said it, but you thought things about someone that you shouldn't have thought. Have you expressed sin in your behavior? Have you failed to love when you should have been loving? Have you been guilty of little sins? Little sins. Have you been guilty of drastic sins? What if you have sinned as a Christian? What's to be done? We talked some about that last week. Again, those verses 5 through 10 talk about how to deal with sin and how not to deal with it. But the message behind the two verses that we're looking at today is this. Don't despair. Don't despair over your sins. Don't despair over your sins committed as a Christian. We saw in the last chapter that we are not to deny our sins, but rather we are to confess our sins. But God continues to talk about sin in this chapter, and he He wants us to know that we are not to despair over them either. We don't take them lightly, but we don't despair over them. And why should you not despair over your sins as a Christian? Because in these two verses of God's Word, verses one and two of chapter two, God identifies for us two provisions for our sin problems, for our sin problems as Christians. Two provisions for our sin problem. Before we get to the provisions though, let's talk about our sin problem as Christians. As born again believers, we we are no longer under the realm of sin. We are no longer under sin's dominion or power. We are under grace, Romans six fourteen. Christ has freed us from the power of sin as individuals. But that doesn't mean that sin doesn't still tempt us. In Christ, we have been freed to serve God, to do things that please him, to obey him. But sin can still bother us. You and I as Christians here and now are in a transition stage. We have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We've been delivered from the domineering power of sin, but not yet freed completely from the presence of sin. That will come when we see Christ again. Absolute moral and ethical perfection then, but not yet. We as Christians, because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, we are to make progress in holiness. We are to pursue holiness. We are to make strides forward in righteousness and godliness. Listen to what... Piper John Piper says about this he says that conversion God's light and truth comes into a person's heart But they don't immediately drive out all falsehood and sin That is a battle that lasts a lifetime a battle that we are to be waging against sin Another preacher puts it this way as long as we are in this mortal body. We shall be bothered by sin But there is there's a day coming when we shall not be bothered by sin in any respect at all Now we need to be we need to be careful here If you are a believer, what should your attitude towards sin be? If you're a believer, what should your attitude towards sin be? Hatred. Hatred. You must hate sin. You must hate it in the world. You must hate it in yourself. Christ hates sin, and as his follower and disciple, so must you. The reality that Christians sometimes sin and that there is forgiveness for our sins doesn't mean that we can take sin lightly or not be concerned about it. Again, uh, verse 1 says, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. That's the goal. That's the objective. The Apostle John is not writing this to his congregation so that they'll be careless in their walk with Christ. Quite the opposite. He desires vigilance on their part. And the Holy Spirit has not put this passage here for you and me to read so that we can, oh, you know, it's not such a big deal. No, that's not it at all. He desires us to be Vigilant in our, in our, in our, um, in our walk in life. Vigilant against sin. Battling sin in our life. There's always the danger when we talk about grace and forgiveness of sins that some will think, well, I guess it doesn't matter how I live. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's wiping your feet all over God's grace when you don't care about sin and just continue to live a lazy, sinful life. If you read through 1st John sometime through the whole letter, Look specifically for John's attitude towards sin. I think you'll find that his attitude is horror and hatred and fear and repudiation of sin. Jesus' message to us is the same as the woman that was caught in adultery. He said to her, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. So it's an interesting connection that we have in our two verses today. When John says, between these two sentences, the connection, I'm writing you these things so that So that you may not sin, that's the goal, that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, what's he doing? He's charting a course here between two extremes, between leniency on the one hand and despair on the other hand. We're not to be lenient, but on the other hand, we're not to despair either. We're not to be lax and careless, but we're not to despair and give up if we do sin. It's like it's like any n- number of disciplines in life, whether in athletics, or in music, or in cooking, or whatever, whatever discipline. Um, you strive for perfection. You're striving. If you're taking it seriously, you're striving for perf- perfection. You don't want to make mistakes. But if you don't, if you do make a mistake, you don't give up. You don't just completely give up. Say, oh, forget it. Some people do, <laughs> but that's not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> And that's certainly not what you're supposed to do in terms of your Christian walk when it comes to sin. So the message of this passage is don't despair over your sin problem as a Christian because, and this is the burden of the passage, there are two provisions. There are two provisions uh, for the sin problem. Now, we've talked about the sin problem. Let's look at the provisions. The first one is talked about in the first sentence, and the second one is talked about in the last two sentences. So look at verse 1. My little children... I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. He says, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. I am writing you these things. What is it that John is writing? Well, he's writing this letter to his people. But ultimately, what did this letter become? This letter became Scripture. It became the Bible. So this is our first provision, the Bible. The Bible is our first provision against sin. I want to draw out two things about the Bible. Uh, first, letter A, the power of the Bible. The power of the Bible. He says, I am writing you these things with the goal that you won't sin. D. L. Moody highlighted the supernatural character of the scriptures, the power of the scriptures, when he said, the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. The Bible will keep you from sin. Psalm 119, 11, I have treasured your word in my heart, David writes, so that I might not sin against you. I've stored up scripture in my heart. I've meditated upon scripture. I've memorized, I've put in my heart so that I will not, I may not sin against you. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, prayed in John chapter 17 for his disciples. And he said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, make them holy by the scriptures. He prayed to his father, make them holy by the scriptures, make them good by the scriptures. Use your word, God, to make them good. There is power in the word of God. It has power to make you godly and holy and good. And it is powerful to tear down sin in your life. It is powerful to tear out sin from your life. Jeremiah 23 talks about the word of God. God says this, is not my word like fire? It's powerful. This is the Lord's declaration. Is not my word like a hammer that pulverizes rock? That's what God says about his word. Don't you want that kind of power leveled against the sin in your life? That's the power of the Bible. And then the necessity of regular study and meditation. The necessity of regular study and meditation. Meditation on the scriptures, that is. The Bible is a powerful, powerful provision against sin. But how is it a powerful provision? You know, there's all kinds of medicines out there and uh, different medicines are supposed to be applied in different ways. Sometimes you apply medicine to the skin. Whoops. Sometimes you apply medicine to skin. Sometimes you take it orally. Sometimes it's injected. All right. Um, But if medicine is applied in the wrong way, it's it's not all that helpful. If I get a headache and I take ibuprofen and I tape it to my forehead, that ibuprofen's not gonna do me any good. You gotta take the medicine, you gotta take the medicine in the right, and there, there's even funnier examples that we won't go into. But, uh, you, 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 gotta, you gotta take the medicine the right way. And, and the same is true of the scriptures. There's nothing magical about owning a Bible. There's nothing magical about carrying a Bible to church. There's nothing particularly powerful about having 13 or 33 translations on your uh, iPad or your cell phone or whatever. The Bible needs to be internalized and it needs to be internalized regularly. Reading and or, and or studying the Bible every day is a good idea. Thinking about meditating on a verse or two of scripture every day throughout the day is a good idea. The psalmist says, Psalm 119.97, how I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long all day long memorizing scripture verses is a good idea hiding that word in your heart you can't be profoundly influenced by this if you don't know it (laughs) you haven't read it you haven't listened to it uh kent hughes is a pastor up in illinois and uh over in illinois and uh, he wrote a book a while back called *The Disciplines of a Godly Man*. And in that book, he uh, had a chapter on the importance of uh, the discipline of the mind, disciplining your mind. And um, he had he had a comment in there about uh, television. And I've tweaked his comment a little bit to update it for our current scene. But he said it is impossible for any Christian who spends the bulk of his evenings, month after month, week upon week, day in and day out, watching TV. Or movies or the internet or netflix or hulu or the like to have a christian mind it's impossible for you to spend all that time doing that and have a christian mind a biblical mental program cannot coexist with worldly programming he's not saying don't ever watch this stuff but if you're watching it constantly when are you taking in the word when are you taking in the word and if you say, I'm having a daily devotional in the morning, you know, I read the Bible for 10 minutes and pray for a couple minutes. But then at night, I'm on Netflix for like four hours. Um, you need to be in the Word. You need to be meditating. It should be, it should be on your mind often. You should be studying it. You should be studying it alone. You should be studying it with others. The Scriptures are power against sin. But if you're not soaking in the Scriptures, what is your power against sin? How are you standing up against sin? My guess is you're not doing so well. On the other hand, if you study the scriptures and give yourself over to regular reading and learning from the scriptures, you are on your way to becoming stronger and stronger in your resistance to sin and temptation. To the point where sins that have dogged you are becoming unappealing. To the point where godliness and goodness are becoming second nature to you. I have written these things so that you may not sin. God has written this so that you may walk in the way you are supposed to walk, so that you may live in the way you are supposed to live. If it's just sitting on your shelf, it's not doing you any good. The second provision for sin is found in the remainder of today's passage. The, the second part, the second sentence there, verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. But if anyone does sin, we have, what do we have? We have Jesus Christ. If anyone does sin, we have Jesus Christ. And I want to look at two things that this passage tells us about Jesus. Two things this passage tells us about Jesus. The first is this: He is our advocate with the Father. He is our He is your advocate with the Father, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Despite your sin as a Christian, Jesus advocates on your behalf. Is he trying to prove you innocent? No <laughs> Of course not. Everyone knows you're guilty. Um, but what he continually demonstrates is his payment for your guilt, for your sin. When he died, he didn't die for his own sins. He didn't have any. He died for your sins. He paid the price for your sins. When Jesus became a man, he lived a life, he lived the life that you were supposed to live. He lived the perfect, obedient, perfectly obedient life that you were supposed to live. He lived in complete, total obedience and submission to the Father. That kind of life doesn't deserve or even earn death. Jesus didn't need to die. There was no punishment or sentence leveled against him because he wasn't guilty of anything. You and me, we're all guilty of something. In fact, all of us are guilty of many things. There's not one innocent person in this room. Even your sweet, elderly grandmother is not perfect. She is guilty of sin. But Jesus was not guilty of anything, and therefore he didn't deserve to die. But he did die. Why? Because he died for the sins of the whole world, the Bible says. How do you like that? The one guy who was innocent got stuck with the tab for everyone else who was guilty. Except that makes it sound like it was forced on him, and it it wasn't. He wasn't stuck. He came voluntarily. He came willingly. He came purposefully to do just that, to pick up the tab, in a sense. For the whole world to die for you and to die for me. And his payment was good. He was successful on the cross. He cried out it is finished. And then he committed his life to the father. He died. And then he was raised from the dead, which proves the efficacy proves um, that the crucifixion worked um, that he did, in fact, uh, achieve what he came to do. And that was to pay for our sins. So he is our advocate with the Father. He is with the Father, it says. He has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. Always there, always with God the Father. The payment for our sins, the reminder that our sins are paid for, is right there with the Father. Now, it's not like God the Father would forget. Or it's not like God the Father is grumpy or has a grudge against us and wants to nail us for our sins. That's not true either. It was God the Father who sent Jesus to die for us. And what was the motivation for God sending Jesus to die for us? John 3.16 says that God so what? Loved. All right, so it's not like Jesus is right there beside the Father saying, Hey, hey, remember, I paid for their sins. I know you want to na-. No, that's not it. They're, they're, they were in unity. They were in unity on this. The Father loved us and sent his Son. The Son loved us and came in response to the Father and in a desire to save us as well. So why does the text refer to Jesus as an advocate? The point of saying that Jesus is our advocate is to show that Jesus is not against you, but he is for you. He is for you. So you're a Christian and you've sinned. Don't despair. You have an advocate with God the Father. And it's none other than Jesus Christ, the one who dealt with your sins in the first place. We have an advocate. You have an advocate with God the Father right now in heaven, Jesus Christ. The second provision for the sins then comes in verse two. He Himself is the propitiation. Well, Jesus is the uh, Jesus is the provision for our second provision for our sins. But um, the second truth about Jesus, verse two, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. So that's what we'll write down. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the what? Propitiation. I'm sure that's a word you use a lot. What is a propitiation? A propitiation is something that turns away someone's wrath from you. Someone's angry from you, someone's angry with you, um, and you want to render them propitious towards you. It's another word you use a lot, alright? So you give them like a peace offering, if you will. Give them a peace offering. Uh, in the past, husbands would often pick up flowers to appease, as a peace offering, if you will. When it comes to you and God, a propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath against you, God's anger against you because of your sin. It's a sacrifice that changes God from being angry at you to acting favorably toward you. You see, everyone outside of Christ is under God's omnipotent wrath because of their sins. Before you came to faith in Christ, you were under God's wrath. And you were destined to experience the ultimate expression of his wrath at the final at the future final judgment. Look at Ephesians chapter two, verse three. We too, Paul is writing to believers, he said, but he talks about their former state. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Okay, in other words, we were sinners, we freely walked in sin. And what's the result? And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. That's that's who we are by nature. We are under God's wrath because of our sinfulness. John 3, 36. The one who believes in the Son now has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. That's our state. That's our natural state before we become Christians. Because we're sinners, we're naturally under the wrath of God. We move out of that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who saves us from the coming wrath, 1 Thessalonians says. For those who fail to align themselves with Christ, the wrath of God will finally be expressed in eternal torment. Look at Revelation 14. He will also drink, this is the person who does not put their faith in Christ, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest uh, day or night. Now, we're talking about the wrath of God. Understand that God is also loving. God is love. First John is the book that tells us that. God is love. He is both loving and wrathful. His wrath is a just and righteous expression of anger and judgment against sin. This isn't, this isn't too hard to fathom. Uh, there, there are things that loving people properly hate in this world. Properly get angry about. There are many good and loving people who hate, for instance, human trafficking. And well, they should. God is a good God, and because he is good, he hates sin. He hates unrighteousness. He hates wickedness. So men and women are under God's wrath, but God also loves us. And because he loves us, he has provided a sacrifice, which is called a propitiation. And that propitiation is his son, Jesus Christ, to appease his wrath. He must, because he is righteous and holy, fully express his wrath against your sins. He must judge your sins. If he didn't judge your sins, he wouldn't be good. He would be unrighteous. If he just winks at sin and lets it get by, he wouldn't be righteous. He wouldn't be holy. So he must judge your sins. Your sins must be paid for. But he provided a sacrifice on which we could transfer our sins. And that's what the whole Old Testament sacrificial system is about. It was a picture of what was to come in, in Jesus Christ. What happened with those animals that were sacrificed? Those sheep and those goats and those rams. People would bring them, and what would they do? They would first lay their hands on them. What, what were they doing? They were transferring, if you will, their sins from them to the animal. Why? Be, um, so that then the animal would be killed for their sins, and they wouldn't be. It was, it was a means of atonement. Look, look at Leviticus. Here's a sample. Here's instruction about a particular kind of sacrifice. Now, if any of the any of the common people sins unintentionally by violating one of the Lord's commands, does what is prohibited and incurs guilt, or if someone informs him about the sin he has committed, then he is to bring an unblemished female goat as his offering for the sin that he has committed. He is to lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest must take some of its blood with his finger and apply it to the horns of the altar of burnt offering. He must pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. The priest is to burn it on the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement on his behalf, and he will be forgiven. I want you to notice some things in that passage. First of all, notice that the animal was unblemished. It was a perfect perfect animal specimen. In other words, it had no sins, if you will. Notice then that the sinner lays their hands on the on that animal. It's a transfer of their sins to the sinless animal. And then the animal is killed. The penalty for sin. The sin has been transferred to the animal, and the animal has killed the, the wrath of God against sin. And then we see that atonement is achieved. Atonement is achieved. That is, the sins have been dealt with, and they no longer provoke wrath from God, because they've been dealt with. And then we see that the sins are forgiven, but not until then. Forgiveness comes after the sins have been dealt with. Hebrews 9.22 spells out, One of the laws of god's justice without the shedding of blood without death There is no forgiveness of sins Without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins Because of god's love and mercy. He provided the sacrificial system Which pointed forward to what jesus christ would ultimately accomplish? the blood of hebrews tells us that the blood of lambs and goats those ultimately did not All they did was remind us of sin. It was a picture of what was to come. They didn't really atone for sin, but it's Christ who atones for our sins. God could have let us die in our sins without any hope of escaping his wrath, but he didn't. Because of his love and mercy, he gave his own son to be our propitiation, that ultimate sacrifice that would turn away his wrath for good. So the New Testament pictures Jesus as their sacrificial lamb. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. What? A lamb without blemish or defect. A sinless, perfect lamb was Christ. And as our sacrificial lamb, our sins were transferred onto Christ. Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all sinned. Each of us has turned to our own way. And what has the Lord done? The Lord has laid on him our iniquity. Our sins have been transferred to Christ. Or or 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sins were transferred onto Christ. And then he experienced the wrath of God for them on the cross. Remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? Behold the Lamb. John one twenty nine. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And what does he do? He takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. If you are a Christian, if you are trusting on the Lord Jesus for your salvation, God has already poured out his righteous, omnipotent wrath on all your sins. They were all put on Jesus and when Jesus suffered on the cross, He was suffering in His person the full, unmitigated wrath of God against your sins. He is your propitiation and even now He is your advocate in heaven. Let me just quickly share with you three applications. If you're a Christian, one, one goal is that you will, one goal of this uh, passage here is that you Will, one application is that you will seek to please God, that you will strive for godly living, that you will live to make Him smile, that you won't take sin lightly, that you won't take sin leniently, that you won't think, you know, my sins are forgiven anyway, so what's some sin going to hurt? That's my The application of Scripture is not that you would do that. The application of Scripture, rather, is that you would be in the Scriptures, for they are the power of God to help you against sin in your life. But then a second application is this, that if you're a genuine Christian, that you won't despair and fall into dark depression when you do sin, when you do slip up, that you won't think, I wonder if God will forgive me, that you won't listen to the devil when he whispers in your ear and says, you know what, you've come to the Lord now ten times because of this particular sin. There's no way he's going to listen to you now. There's no way he's going to forgive you now. Don't listen to that. That's not Scripture. That's not Scripture. We're to continue to strive against sin, but when you do sin, don't despair. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, 1 John 1, 9, if you sin, this is what you should do. You should go to 1 John 1, 9 and read it. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. All right? And then you should skip a verse and go to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and read that. If anyone does sin, what? You have an advocate with the Father. Jesus is the propitiation for your sins. So don't despair if you do sin. And then a final application pertains to those of you who are not aligned with Jesus Christ, to those of you who have not put your faith in Christ. The application would be that you you see yourself, that you are under God's wrath now, and that you are headed for even greater wrath from God. John 3, 36, again, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son... Will not see life. Are you one who has not believed on, are you one who is not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? Then the rest of the verse applies to you. The wrath of God remains on you. And not only that, Romans 2 5 says, but because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, because you are not believing in the Lord, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Not only are you under God's wrath, but you are storing up wrath for yourself at the judgment when you stand before the judge. I hope that these passages, if you don't know Christ, I hope these passages frighten you. For your own sake, I hope that they frighten you. Hell is horrible and it's everlasting. And it's in your future if you don't know Jesus Christ. Each day brings you closer to that day when you'll enter into it. And as you know, no one knows what day he will step into eternity. A lot, of it, a lot of people step into it a lot sooner than what they think. You do not know the day of your death. You need to close with Christ. You need to turn to him and confess to him that you are a sinner. You need to surrender your life to him. And it's only in Christ that you can be saved from God's omnipotent wrath against your sins but praise god for those of you who put your faith in christ that jesus is your advocate now and he is your propitiation that he is the one who has turned god's wrath away from you for eternity and now god smiles on you with his favor because when he sees you he sees you clothed in the righteousness of jesus christ let's pray